we talk about uh, the issue of abortion, which of course, as Pastor Rick mentioned, has now been 44 years of legalized abortion. Uh, if you were born after 1973, I think it's safe to say that you're actually a survivor of the abortion holocaust. Over 55 million, 55 million unborn human beings have been killed through legalized abortion in our country, in the U.S. alone, since 1973. That's over a million a year here. It's over 3,000 a day here. Let's not even talk about worldwide numbers. So when we talk about an issue of such gravity and weight and an issue we know is so close to the Lord's heart and sadly an issue that has been legal for such a long time, I think there's an underlying sort of foundational question that we have to ask before we even get into the nitty-gritty of the issue of abortion. And that question is, what makes humans valuable? And who counts as one of us? And who gets to decide who lives and who dies? Make no mistake, there are two radically different views, two radically different views of humanity when we talk about the issue of abortion. The first view says, yes, we can kill unborn children because they're not one of us. The other view says, no, we cannot kill unborn children because they are one of us. Two radically different views of humanity. And this question, what makes humans valuable, has been debated for literally hundreds of years, unfortunately. In our country, as early as the 1850s, Abraham Lincoln wrote a piece called Fragments on Slavery, and in it he responded to some of the pro-slavery rhetoric of his day, arguments for slavery. And this is what he said. He said, you say A is white and B is black. It is color then, the lighter having the right to enslave the darker. Take care, by this rule, you are a slave to the first man you meet with a fairer skin than your own. You do not mean color exactly. You mean the whites are intellectually the superiors of the blacks and therefore have the right to enslave them. Take care again, by this rule, you are to be a slave to the first man you meet with an intellect superior to your own. But you say it is a question of interest, and if you can make it your interest, you have the right to enslave another. Very well. And if he can make it his interest, he has the right to enslave you. See, Abraham Lincoln was responding to a view of humanity that said you don't have value in virtue of being a human being. You have value because of some accidental or acquired properties, like race, skin color, age, level of intelligence, etc. And the problem is when you, when we ground human value in acquired properties, things we can perform, how we look, you don't just dehumanize that victim class, you dehumanize all human beings because we differ from each other in those categories. Some of you are better athletes, some of you are better mathletes, some of you are better musicians, some of you are better artists. We're different. So if you ground human value in things that human beings differ in, you dehumanize all human beings. And that's the type of view of humanity that Abraham Lincoln was responding to. And yet this question, what makes humans, humans valuable, continues to be raged in our country today. In fact, Peter Singer, a pro-choice philosopher and author who defends a woman's right to end 
the life of her unborn offspring in the womb, wrote in his piece called Practical Ethics that human babies are not born self-aware or capable of grasping that they exist over time. Therefore, he goes on to say, the life of a newborn is of less value than the life of a pig, a dog, or a chimpanzee. Peter Singer is still alive today. He's a published author. And he's not talking about unborn children. He's talking about newborn infants calling into question their humanity and their value. What makes humans valuable continues to be debated today. And so it is with the abortion issue. The unborn child differs from us. And so people maximize on those differences and say, therefore, we can use them to kill the unborn child, just like we did with African Americans in our own country. Oh, the unborn child is smaller, less developed. Oh, it's dependent on the mother. It can't feel pain. They're different differences than people use to justify slavery, but they're still differences, and they're used to justify taking life. So what makes humans valuable? That's the underlying question we need to talk about when we talk about the issue of abortion. And sadly and unfortunately, we have a bloody history as a country and as our world of defining people out of existence to justify their mistreatment or slaughter. For example, in Germany during the Holocaust, it was said that Jews were not full human beings. With African Americans in our own country, we said that they're so much not a human being like us that their vote only counts for three-fifths of a person. So we define people out of existence, and once we do that, it's very easy to justify their mistreatment or extermination. And that is what is happening today with the unborn child and has been happening for 44 years this month. So, with radically different ideas about what it means to be human and what it means to have value, we as Christians need to learn how to bring moral and spiritual clarity to the issue of abortion. Because our country is deeply morally confused on the issue of abortion. And our country, and unfortunately many of our churches in the United States, are deeply spiritually confused on the issue of abortion. And I'd like to give you four questions to ask yourself and then answer to do this, to bring moral and spiritual clarity to the issue of abortion, and they are as follows. What does the Bible teach about human value? What does the Bible teach about the unborn? Well, and then what is the unborn? And lastly, what is your duty? What is our duty as Christians and followers of Jesus? If you didn't get all four of those, I'm going to address each of them individually so you can be sure that you'll be able to write them down. The first is, what does the Bible teach about human value? The Bible teaches that your value as a human being is intrinsic and not instrumental. Fancy words to mean your value comes from the fact that you're a human being. It is in virtue of being a human being to have value. But it's not instrumental. Your value does not come from what you can perform what accidental properties you may possess, your intelligence level, your race, your gender, your ethnicity, your talents, your skills. Your value does not come from those things because we don't share those things equally as human beings. So your value is intrinsic to who you are as a human being. And the biblical case for human value is always, has always been grounded in the imago Dei, in the image of God. And we read about this in the very first pages of Scripture, right? Genesis 1, 26 through 27 says... Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. 
So scripture teaches that you have value as a human being because you bear the imprint and design of God. And he sees and knows and loves the life he creates. And then in the New Testament, in James, James tells us that the fact that the Imago Dei exists, the fact that we bear the image of God, should have some bearing on how we treat each other. James 3, 7 says, People can tame all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and fish, but no one can tame the tongue. It is restless and evil, full of deadly poison. Sometimes it praises our Lord and Father. And sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God. So why is it wrong to curse people? Well, James says because those people like you bear the image of God. They have the imprint and design of their maker in their very DNA. And so they have value as such. So that's why it's wrong to curse people. Because they are image bearers just like you. Because Scripture grounds human value in the, in the imago Dei, it is for that reason that Scripture strictly forbids the shedding of innocent blood and the taking of innocent life. Exodus 23, 7 says, Be sure never to charge anyone falsely with evil. Never sentence an innocent or blameless person to death. For I never declare a guilty person to be innocent. So Scripture says, Don't shed innocent blood! Well, Why? Because like you, that innocent person bears the image of God. And God knows and sees and loves the life that he purposely created in the womb. So the shedding of innocent blood is strictly forbidden in Scripture because the innocent people whose lives are on the line are image bearers. Therefore, Jeremiah 22.3 says, Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, or the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. So this, the teaching of Scripture is very clear. The shedding of innocent blood is strictly forbidden. Why? Because those people bear the image of God like you. So killing innocent human beings actually mars the image of God, and it devalues the life he has made. Abortion, then, is us playing God, deciding who lives and who dies and who has value. This last November, just a few months ago, in St. George, Utah, something happened that hit social media like wildfire. And millennial progressives were throwing a fit over what happened, demanding justice. And here's what happened. A little girl was playing in her front yard with her two-pound Yorkshire Terrier puppy, and as she's playing with her puppy, her, uh, her, her puppy sees something across the street that interests him. And so the dog crosses the street, <clears throat> steps onto the neighbor's front lawn, and approaches the neighbor. And this neighbor is caring for his property, he's landscaping, he's gardening. And as the puppy approaches the neighbor, the neighbor takes his gardening shears, swings them at the dog's head, and kills the dog on impact. If convicted, the man faces up to a year in prison and a $2,500 fine. Now. Was that wrong? Of course that was wrong. Why was it wrong? Because the dog was theirs. The dog was a little girl, and the family loved the dog, and they knew the dog, and they chose the dog, and they raised the dog, and it's a pet, and it's a part of the family, and so that was wrong, right? And yet, abortion is wrong because it takes the life of an innocent human being who is not just known and loved by their creator, but was made by their creator, was made in the image of God. And the insanity in our nation today, 
is that we have more anger over a dog who dies at the hands of another human being than at the over one million unborn precious human beings who are killed by abortionists in our country today at the request of their mothers and at the hands of physicians. And yet it is completely legal to take the life of the unborn child in the womb through all nine months of pregnancy for any reason or no reason at all. So if we as Christians are going to bring moral and spiritual clarity to the issue of abortion, we firstly have to answer the question, what does the Bible teach about human value? Secondly, we have to answer the question, what does the Bible teach about the unborn? Scripture teaches that God is the knitter of human life. He's the knitter of unborn life in the womb. And I'm sure many of you are thinking of the most beautiful passage that depicts this reality. Psalm 139, 13 says, You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. So from Genesis, we know that God created human beings, man and woman, in his image. And then Psalms tells us that God knits, creates, unborn human life in the womb. So what follows? That the unborn child, the unborn human child in the womb, also bears the image of God, also bears the Imago Dei, and has value as such. The unborn child is an image bearer, just like you and I. But frankly, guys, the Bible doesn't have any direct teaching on abortion. In fact, the word abortion does not occur in Scripture. Now, we can draw principles from Scripture to form a pro-life worldview, and I think we should, and I think we can. But the word abortion does not occur in Scripture. And sadly, many Christians point that out as a justification for not taking a stand on abortion. I've been asked by pastors Seth, if abortion is, is as an important issue as you say it is, why doesn't Jesus teach on it in Scripture? But here's the thing, guys. Scripture doesn't have to say something is wrong for us to know that it is wrong. There's plenty of things in, in Scripture that are not forbidden, that are not forbode. But does that mean that Scripture then condones those things? Of course not. For example, Forced female circumcision, a horrific practice, practice in some parts of the world, is not forbidden in Scripture. I bet you'd be hard-pressed to find a Christian who therefore says, well, I guess Scripture has no opinion on that. So Scripture doesn't have to say something is wrong for us to know that it is wrong. But we can draw principles from Scripture to form our pro-life worldview. So if the unborn is a human being like you and I that shares our common human nature, guess what? The, sh the laws against shedding of innocent blood in Scripture would apply to the unborn as well because they are common image bearers like you and I. But I'm going to show you in a second how you can defend the conclusion that the unborn is one of us. And we're going to do that by making a scientific and philosophic case. And this will be important because we as ambassadors for Christ and ambassadors for the unborn children in our midst need to be able to defend our pro-life beliefs and be a voice for the unborn by using Scripture and without using Scripture. 
And the reason that's important is because if you're defending your pro-life beliefs to someone who is a secular humanist and your argument is abortion is wrong because God makes life and, and, and they bear the image of God and they go, I don't believe in God. Well, your, your whole defense of your pro-life view just imploded. It's, it's true, it's right, but to them it means nothing. So we need to be able to defend our beliefs on the abortion issue with and without scripture. And this will also be important to Christians who are pro-choice, which I'm sorry to tell you is a growing number in our country. As a student at Westmont College, I encountered multiple Christians who I would say loved Jesus. And yet, at the same time, they were saying that they believed a woman should have the right to choose. So to Christians who think differently on this issue, we can also make a scientific case by proving the unborn is one of us, and therefore those unborn children would have the image of God. So how do we do this? We make a scientific and philosophic case, and this will be important because the scientific case proves the humanity of the unborn child. Science answers the question of what type of being is the unborn? Well, it's a, it's a human being. And the philosophic case answers the question of value. Okay, the unborn may be a human being, but does it have value, and why should we treat him or her well? So that's why these two cases are important. So if we as Christians are going to bring moral and spiritual clarity to the abortion issue, we firstly have to answer the question, what does the Bible teach about human value? Secondly, what does the Bible teach about the unborn? And thirdly, what is the unborn? And we will answer this question by using the scientific and philosophic case I just discussed. But this question, what is the unborn, is pivotal. It is the most pivotal question in the abortion issue. And I want to tell you a brief anecdote to help illustrate why this question, this simple question, is so important. I want you to expand your imagination with me for a second and imagine that you're standing at your kitchen sink doing dishes one evening because it's an unjust world and you live in South County and you don't have a dishwasher. So you're standing there doing dishes. And, and as you're standing there, your three-year-old toddler walks up behind you. And your three-year-old toddler asks you this question, Mommy or Daddy, can I kill this? Now, many of you parents have probably heard that question <laughs> lots of times, but your back is turned. And so what would be the first question out of your mouth in response to your toddler's question, can I kill this? What is it? What is it? Because if you turned around and he was holding a cockroach, you might say, here, son, here's a hammer, don't tell mom. <laughs> but if he was holding the newborn neighbor puppy, you would probably have a different response, wouldn't you? And then if he had his little brother by the throat, you need counseling. <laughs> so you can't answer the question, can we kill this, until we answer the question, what is this? Similarly, on the issue of abortion, we can't have an honest dialogue on the issue of abortion. We can't answer the question, can we kill the unborn child, until we answer the question, what is the unborn child? And here's why this is important. If the unborn child is not a human being, no justification for abortion is necessary. Have as many abortions as you'd like. The unborn is not a human being. It's no different than getting your fingernails clipped. However, if the unborn is a human being, no justification for abortion is adequate. No justification suffices to defend that choice if the unborn is one of us. That's why that question is so important. And you can use this issue, this question, to simplify the abortion debate, to drive it back to the question that really matters. But we also need to answer this question, and we're going to do that with science and philosophy. Scientifically, pro-life advocates argue the following. From the earliest stages of development, the unborn child is a distinct living and whole human being. The earliest stages of development meaning conception. It's distinct because the unborn child is a separate entity from the mother. 
it has its own unique DNA code. It has its own individual thumbprint. And get this, the unborn child could be a male when the mother's a female. So if the unborn child is part of the mother's body, how do you solve that question? So the unborn child is distinct because it's a separate entity. Entity. It's living because it meets all the requirements of a living thing, and it's whole. When we say the unborn child is a whole human being, we mean this. Everything that's necessary for the unborn child to realize his or her full growth and potential as a participating member of the human race is already present at the moment of conception. I'm going to tell you another anecdote to drive this point home. I want you to expand your imagination with me one more time and imagine that you just won tickets to a safari outdoor wildlife excursion in Africa. You get to be taken out on the plains of Africa and you get to see wildlife in its natural habitat. And you got to take some friends with you and you get this like totally cool uh, tricked out tour bus and, and, and you get to see this wildlife. And you've all packed everything you need. You've all gotten your digital cameras and your iPhone 7s with the 4K camera and everything. But one of you just is like ultimate hipster, like new is bad, old is good. Like, and so you bring the Polaroid camera that spits the photo out as soon as you take it. And you shake it and the image starts appearing, right? Some of you young people have no idea what I'm talking about. But so you're sitting in the front seat and the tour guide over the intercom of the tour bus tells you, hey, we're entering an, ar an area where a black jaguar uh, has been habitating and has been sighted recently. Black jaguars are rarely seen and even more rarely photographed. And so you're pumped. And to your luck, crazy, to your luck, this black jaguar sprints out from the bushes and then leaps across the path in front of you, 10 or 20 feet in front of you, and then runs away but you got a picture of him airborne in front of the vehicle. The photo gets spit out, you start shaking it. At that moment, I reach behind your right shoulder, I tear the photo out of your hands, I rip it up into little pieces, and I throw it to the side of the road. Not funny, right? You would be infuriated with me, but what if, what if I just said, dude, 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 that was, not a black pic that was not a picture of a black jaguar. That was just a black smudge on a white piece of paper you would probably respond to me saying that by saying, Seth, the jaguar was already there. We just couldn't see him yet. But everything that was necessary for the photo to realize its full development so that we could see it was already present when the photo got spit out. That's what I mean when I say that from the earliest stages of development, the unborn child is a distinct living and whole human being and everything that's necessary for the unborn child to realize his or her full growth and potential as one of us is already present at the moment of conception, even if we can't see him or her yet. You didn't come from an embryo. You once were an embryo. That's the scientific case for life and it answers the question of what type of being is the unborn child. It's a human being who shares our common human nature. But science can't tell me why I should treat the unborn with any dignity. Science tells me that you're a human being, part of the species Homo sapiens. Can't tell me why I should treat you with value. So we turn to our philosophic case to answer the question of value. Philosophically, pro-life advocates argue the following. There is no essential or value-giving difference between the embryo you once were in your mother's womb and the adults or young adults that you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. There is no value-giving difference between who you were in the womb and who you are now that would justify killing you in the womb. 
you didn't gain any value after conception that you didn't already have at the moment of conception. That's the philosophic case for life. But clearly, there are differences when, when, between the unborn child and you and I. When we say there are no value-giving differences, we mean that none of the differences between the unborn child and you and I can be used to kill the unborn child. None of those differences are relevant in determining, do you have value? But clearly there's differences between the unborn in the womb and you and I. We'd be a fool to say there's no differences. And here's an acronym to help you remember what those four differences are between who you once were in the womb and who you are now. That acronym is SLED, S-L-E-D. A sort of difficult concept in Southern California, but work with me. Hey, we've had a little cold winter in SoCal so far, maybe, maybe. S stands for size. Yes, it's true, the unborn child is smaller than the newborn child. Just like the newborn child is smaller than the toddler. Just like I'm six foot three and larger than most of you, if not all of you in this room. Do I have more value because I'm larger? Men are generally larger than women. Do we like where that reasoning leads? Our value is not based on our size, is it? So that difference can't be used to justify taking the life of the unborn child because we differ in size from each other as well. Size, level of development. Yes, it's true, the unborn child is less developed than the newborn child. Just like the newborn child is less developed than the toddler and the toddler is less developed than the teenager, just like your kids are less developed than you. But no parent would say that their children have less value than them. They may feel like that sometimes. So clearly, our level of development is not relevant in determining our value. And yet, size and level of development are differences that people point to to justify abortion. Environment, simply where you're located. Yes, it's true, the unborn child is located in a very unique and wonderful environment, his or her mother's womb. But since when has your location had any relevancy to your value? When you get up and leave the sanctuary and go have yummy leftover donuts, hopefully, you will have changed locations. But did you lose your value as a human being because you moved? When you roll over in bed, do you lose your value as a human being? I mean, in fact, the distance I just traveled is a radically further distance than the unborn child will travel from his or her mother's womb through the birth canal and into the waiting doctor's hands. And yet, I didn't lose my value covering that distance, so why would a six-inch six journey down the birth canal change the unborn child from something that we can kill through legalized abortion to something that we're required to protect by law? Where one is has no bearing on who one is. Size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency. How dependent you are on someone or something else for your growth and life and sustenance. Yes, the unborn child's dependent on the mother. And in the first trimester and early second trimester, though we're saving preemie babies earlier and earlier, the unborn child can't survive apart from the mother. But if your dependency on someone or something else is relevant to your value as a human being, we'd be forced to admit that all of those dependent on heart pacemakers, kidney machines, insulin, life support, are all non-humans or don't have value as humans because they're dependent on something without which they cannot continue to live. And we don't like where that reasoning leads. These are the four differences between who you all once were in the womb and who you are now, and none of them are relevant in determining your value as a human being, so they're not relevant in determining the unborn's value. That's the philosophic case for life. And if we don't ground this value, this human value, at the moment of conception and based off our, our shared common human nature, then we run into the moral dilemma called functionalism, which says that you don't have value in virtue of being a human being. You actually have value based off of what you can do. This was the worldview that Abraham Lincoln was responding to. 
It's a view that says your value is based on functions. Your ability to feel pain, your rationality, your ability to dream, your ability to, uh, up for memory, your, what you can perform, your athleticism, your intelligence level, your race, your skin color, your age, your ethnicity. And it says that you don't have value based off your common human nature and in virtue of being a human being. So we have to ground our value in our common human nature, otherwise we can justify taking the lives of born people as well. That is the scientific and philosophic case for life, and that's how you can illustrate that the unborn child has a human nature like you and I and has value like you and I. So given what we know scientifically and philosophically, we can logically conclude that the unborn child is one of us and therefore has value as such, and, as such. And so abortion is wrong because it ends the life of a defenseless unborn human person without proper justification and snuffs out the life that God created in his image and in his likeness. In other words, humans bear the image of God. The unborn child is a human. Therefore, the unborn child bears the image of God. It's that simple. But in a relativistic culture like ours, that says that all truth is personal truth or that there is no truth, how do you respond to someone after you lay out a scientific and philosophic case for life and you present your facts and you show that there's no meaningful difference between the unborn in the womb and those outside the womb that could be used to justify killing them in the womb? And then they respond by saying, that's just your truth. There is no truth. How do you respond to a relativistic culture that denies the reality of truth at all? Well, it goes without saying that uh, the worldview of relativism is self-defeating because if there is no truth, how did someone arrive at the truth that there's no truth? If there's no truth, and that's true, how did someone realize that was true? Because they would have to have access to truth to realize there's no truth. But there's no truth! So the worldview of relativism is firstly self-defeating. But once we move past that point, how do we respond to a culture that responds to our case and just says there's no truth. Well, I'd like to suggest that we graciously offer to show them what abortion is and does to the unborn child to reawaken their moral sensibilities. Most people who are already convinced that abortion is a right and rational choice will not change their mind until they begin to feel differently about the issue. This is a truth of humankind. We, we generally don't change how we think about something until we've been changed how we feel about that thing. And isn't this true of the gospel? We don't begin to live differently and think differently and respond to God differently until we've been changed from here, until our affections have been changed for a higher love. For the, the God who is love, who created us, once, once that has been changed, once the heart has been changed, then we begin to think and act and live differently. The same holds true here. Most people will not change how they think on the abortion issue until they've been changed how they feel about it. And abortion, victim, photography, I'd like to suggest, is the most powerful way to do this. We are going to show a brief video clip this morning that shows what abortion is and does to the unborn child. <clears throat> and I want to warn you before we play it that it's graphic and it's disturbing. And you know why? Because abortion is graphic and disturbing. And this imagery simply shows the gruesome nature of abortion. Let's call this a God's eye view of every abortion that has ever taken place. 
Now, we want to warn you and tell you that um, if, you, if you feel like you don't want to watch this, feel free to avert your gaze or close your eyes or look away. We've actually put instrumental music over the video so that if you, if you choose to opt out of the presentation by averting your gaze, you won't even hear anything you don't want to hear. So we and the pastoral staff here don't want anyone in this room to feel like they were manipulated or pressured into watching something that they would have chosen not to. So feel free to practice your civil liberties in that way, uh, and we're going to go ahead and run this brief video clip. It's very easy sometimes to talk about moral issues simply from our minds. And yet, this is happening over one million times a year in the United States alone. And this is what God sees every time it happens. So the hard message, the hard truth, is that abortion is sin which means that those who have obtained abortions are sinners, just like you and I. And yet, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus loves sinners. Tim Keller put the gospel in a way that uh, is one of the most simple and beautiful ways I've heard it. He said that the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. So the good news of the gospel is that we are brought low and lifted high at the same time. That the God who created us in his image and likeness is the same God who took on the flesh, the human flesh that he creates knit himself together in the womb of Mary, and then lived the perfect life we couldn't live, died the death we deserve, predicted and pulled off his own resurrection, and now can look at us and only see the perfect record of Christ. So, the truth of the gospel on this issue is that Jesus is just as eager to forgive the sin of abortion as he is any other sin. Abortion is not a blacklist sin. As we know, our sin separates us from God. And yet God drew near to us when we were far and brought us close. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if, if, if what we just saw hits close to home, if this is part of your story or the story of someone close to you,
accept and believe and hear the good news of the gospel, that Jesus is just as eager to forgive the sin of abortion as he is any other sin. And there are pregnancy resource centers and churches and pastors at this church who would love to walk through that journey with you of healing and forgiveness if, if this is something that you're still living under the burden of shame on. So hear that and believe that because that is the news of reality. That is the story of reality of the gospel, that God came, took our sin, rose again, and now offers us forgiveness and his perfect record. Micah 7.18 just drives this beautiful point home even more. It says, where is another God like you who pardons the guilt of the remnant, overlooking the sins of his special people? You will not stay angry with your people forever because you delight in showing unfailing love. Once again, you will have compassion on us. You will trample our sins under your feet and throw them into the depths of the ocean. You will show us your faithfulness and unfailing love as you promised to our ancestors Abraham and Jacob long ago. That is the beauty and good news of the gospel, and it is made available to anyone and everyone who would put their faith in Christ. So if this is part of your story, hear that, receive that, know that, believe that, and know there are people who would love to walk with you. So if we as Christians are going to bring moral and spiritual clarity to the issue of abortion, we firstly have to answer the question, what does the Bible teach about human value? It teaches that you have value because you're made in the image of God. Secondly, we have to answer the question, what does the Bible teach about the unborn? Thirdly, we answer the question, what is the unborn? Which I've just illustrated, we can answer by making a scientific and philosophic case and graciously offering to show people abortion victim photography to humanize the unborn child and to convince people of the inhumanity of abortion. And lastly, we have to ask and answer the question, what is our duty as Christians? What is our duty as the church? I think the answer to this is fairly clear, and I think most of you could answer this question on your own. Our duty as Christians is what? The Great Commission. That is what Christ left the command that he left to his disciples, and therefore by association us, after his resurrection and before his ascension. And in Matthew 28, 16, we read, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely, I am with you always to the very end of the age. What I want to point out here is that the Great Commission is twofold. Make disciples then teach those disciples to obey everything Jesus has commanded. But so often I hear Christian leaders and pastors talk about the Great Commission as if it only entails disciple-making. But the second part of that is we then have to teach those disciples to obey everything Jesus has commanded. Okay, what is Jesus commanded? Well, the entirety of Scripture. Jesus as God uh, would include everything that Scripture has commanded. But Jesus, our Savior, understanding, I think, the burden of the law that it can be, summarized all of the commandments to hinge on two, as we know. And in Mark 12, 28, we read what those are. 
The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So all of the law and the prophets through the entirety of Scripture, every command that comes from the mouth of God, Jesus as God says can hinge on these two. So what is the duty of the church, the Great Commission? Part of the Great Commission is to teach those to obey everything Jesus has commanded. Everything Jesus has commanded can be summarized to two. Love God, love others, or love God and love your neighbor as yourself. So, is the unborn child our neighbor? Right? Should we think about the unborn in the same light that Jesus seemed to put on loving neighbors in Scripture? Which is a huge theme in Scripture. I think the answer to this is that, well, if they share our common human nature, then yes. If the unborn child is a human being like you and I and shares our common human nature and value, then yes, we as Christians should apply the term neighbor to the unborn child in the same way that we naturally apply that term to every born human being that Scripture calls us to love. So yes, the unborn child is our neighbor. And we are called to love our neighbors. So the practical question is how are we called to love our neighbors? What does that look like? Well, I think the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10 is one of the most beautiful pictures of how we are to love our neighbors. If you want to turn to Luke 10, 25 and read along with me, feel free. It will not be up on the screen. And I'm going to go ahead and read the parable in its entirety because I think this is where we need to turn to look to answer the question, how are we supposed to love our neighbors? Luke 10, 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, Well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. The two greatest commandments. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he desiring to justify himself, said, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side of the road. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side of the road. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, You go and do likewise. I think it's safe to say that the Levite and the priest would have been opposed to street mugging. I think it's safe to say that the Levite and the priest, as they passed the bleeding victim, probably felt the right emotion. I wish he hadn't gotten beaten up. I wouldn't have beat him up. 
being the religious hypocrites that they were. But faith without works is dead, and they did not illustrate or take action. They merely felt the right emotion. It was the Good Samaritan, as we know, the bleeding victim's natural enemy, who didn't just feel compassion. Scripture says verbatim, when he saw him, he had compassion. And he made radical sacrifices of his time, his energy, and his money to love his neighbor well. Put him on his own animal so that he had to walk to an end, took care of him, bandaged his wounds, and then paid anything else that accumulated while he was gone. And Jesus tells this parable in response to the question, and who is my neighbor? Greg Cunningham, one of the godfathers of the pro-life movement, says that the measure of how much we care about this issue will not be found in the piety of our rhetoric, but in how much we are willing to sacrifice personally to stop the killing. Faith without works is dead. The Levite and the priest felt the right emotion, but they did not show compassion. And yet, don't take me wrong, our responsibility to love our unborn neighbors and to be a voice for the unborn does not come from some humanitarian sense of obligation. Our responsibility and calling to love our unborn neighbors and to be a voice for the unborn ought to flow out of the gospel itself. Here's what I mean by that. Proverbs 31.8 is one of pro-lifers' favorite verses. And it says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Ensure justice for those being crushed. A very powerful, powerful word given the topic. Yes, speak up for the poor and helpless and see that they get justice. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. And pro-lifers rightly quote this verse by saying, hey, who can't speak up for themselves? The unborn child. And yet, you know what I realized one time as I reflected on this verse? We, apart from Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, are in the same boat. Apart from Christ's sacrifice on the cross, guaranteeing our forgiveness of sins and salvation, are also those who cannot speak for themselves. We can bring nothing to the table. None of us can raise our hands and go, no, no, I can speak for myself. Look at my record. Look at all the right things I've done. None of us can do that. And yet, the good news is that 1 John 2, 1 says, my dear children, I am writing this to you so that you will not sin. But hey, if anybody does sin, we have an advocate who literally pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. So when we were utterly incapable of speaking up for ourselves, someone came in, someone walked in the door, walked into the courtroom while we were being sentenced and said, I'm his advocate. I will speak up for him when he can't speak for himself. And proved it on the cross. Since Christ spoke up for us when we were utterly incapable of doing so, how can we not speak up for the unborn children in our country who are being slaughtered by abortion and also cannot speak up for themselves? So our obligation and responsibility to be a voice for the unborn does not come from some humanitarian sense of obligation. It ought to flow out of the gospel itself because we have been vouched for. We have been spoken for. So that leaves us with this question. What is our duty? I believe the answer to that question is simple. It's to love our unborn neighbors and their mothers sacrificially and lavishly. But that's not very practical. 
what can you do? What can we do and what should we do? Well, I think we need to begin where the gospel begins and that's at repentance. I think we need to repent for our indifference on this issue. I need to repent for my indifference on this issue. We as the church of Christ need to repent for our indifference on this issue. The, the Christians in Germany during the Nazi regime and the Holocaust are not remembered well, brothers and sisters. It is a stain and a mark on the church, on the history of the church, that the majority of Christians in Germany, while Jews were being slaughtered, their neighbors were being slaughtered, almost no one did anything or spoke up. How will we be remembered? How are we going to act? In fact, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of the church's most popular theologians and authors and pastors, and the man who helped spearhead an attempt to assassinate Hitler to save Jewish neighbors' lives, said that silence in the face of evil is itself evil. Not to speak is to speak, not to act is to act. God will not hold us guiltless. So we need to repent for our indifference. After that, I think we should engage, of course, to be a voice for the unborn. And I'd like to leave you with just four words, four ways that you can engage and be a voice for the unborn and be an ambassador for the unborn children in our midst. The first is pray. Pray, pray as an individual, pray as a family, pray as a community group or life group, pray as a church, pray in pray meeting, prayer meetings, pray together. I think it was Spurgeon who said that prayer meetings are the lungs of the church. So pray, plead before the Father to equip and impassion his church to help be a voice for the unborn children and to love our unborn neighbors and their mothers so we can see an end to this great evil. Pray and pray that he will heal our land. Secondly, give. Find a pro-life group. Find a pro-life ministry. Find an individual. Me and, and many other people rely on full-time support to do this work. Find a pregnancy resource center in your city. Find a pro-life group that's doing a mission that you really resonate with and you think is important and give to that ministry. Honestly, almost every pregnancy resource center in our country is underfunded and understaffed. And one of the reasons for that is because most churches in the surrounding areas where there's a pregnancy resource center do not support that pregnancy resource center. And they're the ones on the front line saying, we will walk through you with this with you. We will give you the funds you need. We will provide all services for free so that you can see your unborn child and have compassion on him, just like the Good Samaritan did. So give. Thirdly, learn. Take time to learn what we believe about the unborn. I don't expect you to remember everything I said this morning, and that's fine a lot of content, but take time to learn the pro-life case, how to defend unborn children from science and philosophy and from scripture so that you can be a voice for the unborn in our culture. And lastly, speak. Find how you can contribute your talents and skills towards being a voice for the unborn. And when I say speak, I don't just mean verbally. I mean with actions. I mean with talents and skills. You don't have to be an extrovert to speak for unborn children. This is a mission and calling for all of you. How can you create a marriage between your skills and talents that the Lord has given you and the needs in the pro-life movement? Ask the Lord to show you how you can contribute your skills, talents, career, etc., to be a voice for the unborn and to love our unborn neighbors and their mothers. No one can do everything, nor should we try to do everything. There are lots of important causes. But in the same way that the Holocaust was the dominant issue in Germany during the Nazi regime, even though there were other important issues going on, similarly, on the issue of abortion, abortion is the dominant issue of our day. You know why? Because it's taken over 55 billion unborn image bearers. 
There are other important issues in our culture. There are so many. There are so many. It is so overwhelming and a burden to know what to do against all the evil in the world. I get that. But I'm saying that abortion is the dominant issue of our day. And I'm saying everyone has a part to play. So ask. Ask the Lord how you can contribute your skills, talents. So I think we're left with this last question. What type of people are we going to be? And how, how will we be remembered? I think there's two different ways, one of two different ways we're going to be remembered. This generation, the capital C church in general in our country, we're either going to be remembered as the religious hypocrites, like the Levite and the priest, who were aware of the evil. <laughs> the parable says that he saw them and walked by on the other side of the road. They weren't blind to what was going on. They knew it and they did nothing. Are we going to be remembered as the Levite and the priest who walked by on the other side of the road while unborn children were being killed? Or are we going to be remembered as good Samaritans who, who when, when he turned the corner and saw the bleeding victim, he had compassion? I, I hope and pray that we're remembered as that, as, as ambassadors for Christ and for the unborn who show compassion to unborn children and their mothers by making radical sacrifices of our time, our energy, and our money to love our neighbors well and sacrificially and lavishly. That's what I hope and pray for the church in America and the church here. So I'm going to read the last two verses of the parable of the Good Samaritan, and this time I want you to visualize the issue of abortion. Set aside the parable of the Good Samaritan in the context you know it just for a second and, and picture the issue of abortion and everything I've talked with you this morning and hear these last two sentences. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Pray with me. Father, thank you for life. Thank you that you know and create and love the life you make. Thank you for imprinting each and every human being with your design and your image. Thank you that human beings are, have value and life is sacred because you made that life. We ask you and petition you to embolden your church and equip your church to be a voice for the unborn and to love our unborn neighbors and their mothers sacrificially. Prick at our consciences. Don't allow us to leave this room or go back to our lives without considering the plight of the unborn who are image bearers and have value as such. We repent for our indifference and we ask you, Jesus, to give us the tools we need to show us the way to follow your example of radical, sacrificial love for our neighbors. Thank you for your love. Thank you for proving your love. And thank you for the gospel that though we are sinners, you came and died for us, that we are more hopelessly sinful than we ever dared imagine and yet more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. Drive that truth home in our hearts and Transform us with that truth that we may be ambassadors in a world that is dehumanizing life. Give us the proper view of value in life that we may love people as you loved us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.
Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.